Good morning from the car park at Celtic Park. No, this isn't a protest. <laughs> We're actually waiting to get on a bus to go to Dumfries because it's another Celtic Grave Society event. At this time, we're going to go and commemorate the grave of Brother Walfred himself. Now, many people have uh, had an impact on this club, but few can claim they started it. Uh, that's what Brother Walfred can claim alongside the likes of John Glass and John McLaughlin and other men like him. This is Brother Walfred's concept, and 125. Fifth anniversary is approaching fast, so it seems only fitting that we go and commemorate his grave, which does mean a trip down to Dumfries. So, hopefully, we'll have a, a good event today and maybe even get a few interviews. Okay, so we've arrived in Dumfries now, and we're just walking around to where the, the grave of Brother Walfred is. Good turnout today. Uh, a few of the locals for Dumfries, and a good few came down in the bus as well, uh, and of course. Celtic are represented here as well. Uh, Tony Hamilton, Paul Goddard, and Peter Wall. Uh, you'd almost expect that someone senior like Peter would be here, given how important Brother Wilfred is to our club. So we're all gathered in the, the grave at the moment. It's actually rather unassuming. I don't know why I expected anything else, to be honest. But um, yeah, it's like a heart shaped plaque with Brother Wilfred written on it. Uh, obviously, Andrew Cairns is in brackets after that. Uh, there's a single green ribbon tied around it so that we all know which one it is. It's, it's quite crowded in here, actually. It's, just, it's good to see so many people have turned out for it. I'd like to welcome everyone to St Mount St Michael's Cemetery to commemorate the grave of Brother Walfred the founding father of Celtic Football Club. It's such a huge occasion, it's fitting that we have representing Celtic Football Club, Chief Executive Peter Lowell. Peter has been a fantastic supporter of the Celtic Grave Society since her inception. And in a month where he's been to Helsinki, Helsingborg, Philadelphia, Dingwall and Inverness, it speaks volumes of the man and his love for Celtic that he's here with us today. Also from Celtic with Ian Hughes. Ian's the Chief Executive of the Celtic Charity Fund and he'll say a few words on the importance of keeping the charity aspect of the club alive and well. We also have our own Terry Dick, Racon Tour, Extraordinaire. <laughs> if you've got any appointments, cancel them just now. <laughs> Terry is the son of Glenn Daly and for those who have never heard Glenn Daly sing a Celtic song live, Terry will more than make up for it when you hear the passion in which he talks about Celtic. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got two very special guests with us today from the Marist Order. Brother Julian and Brother Norbert. And Brother Norbert will say a few words later on as well. If there's been no Marists, there would be no Celtic. So let's give the Marist brothers a special welcome here today. from Holy Cross, Glasgow, had to drive down himself after missing the bus. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a show. <laughs> Celtic season ticket holder, Father John will conduct a blessing before we lay flowers in the grave and we'll have a few pictures taken. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy McNeil often <coughs> refers to the Celtic story as a fairy tale. 
and as we stand in such a beautiful, tranquil setting, who could disagree? The story of a 15-year-old Irishman who survives a famine in his native Sligo to arrive in Glasgow in 1855 and finds himself surrounded by poverty and deprivation in the most anti-Irish city on the planet. From the most humble beginnings, he's inspired by the work of the Marists. He receives his vows in 1869 of poverty, chastity and obedience. Sounds a bit like my marriage vows. <laughs> he goes on to teach in St Mary's Calton in Sacred Heart, Brixton. Setting up the poor children's dinner tables in 1884 at Sacred Heart, he increasingly feels the pressure involved in funding the charity along with the St Vincent de Paul Society. But using his contacts to arrange four charity matches in Bridgeton, he was amazed at the popularity of the game of football amongst the parishioners. And when Hibernian won the Scottish Cup in February 1887 and were in St Mary's Hall after the match, the Hibs secretary remarked in a speech challenging the Irish Catholics present in the West to go and do likewise. Brother Walfred didn't need to be asked twice, and nine months later, in the same parish hall, Celtic were born with the humble aims to form a football club to fund the poor children's dinner tables of the parishes of St Mary's, Sacred Heart and St Michael's Parkhead. A football club, but much, much more than a football club, was born that day. Even after Brother Walfred left Glasgow in 1892 to go to London, he carried on the same work there, setting up a poor children's dinner table in St Anne's and also a young man's football team. In 1924, Celtic played West Ham in a friendly to raise funds for St Anne's in London and a two-inch draw in a game where Patsy Gallagher bedazzled the crowd. In March 1891, after a successful tour of England, the Celtic team played St Joseph's College just right there during the Easter Sports Day at the school's football pitch beside the, the coach park in a match that finished three each after both teams were led onto the pitch by the school band, then retired to the refectory afterwards for dinner and speeches. In fact, three Celtic players played the second half for the school team, and there's not many school teams can claim that. Former pupils of the school include Celtic doctor Lily Kivlicken, who tended to John Thompson on that fateful day at Ibrox in 1931. Also Dr Fitzsimmons, who was a long-standing club doctor at Celtic, Jim Brogan played for Celtic in the 60s and 70s. Also directors Robert Kelly, Michael Kelly and James Farrell. There's a famous picture in the grounds here in 1930 showing Brother Dunstan with Willie Maley, Jimmy McGrory and John Thompson on one visit. John Thompson, of course, was to die a few months later. Robert Kelly was known to take the full Celtic team here after we played Queen of the South and Dumfries. And more famously, Jimmy McGrory took the Scottish Cup and the Coronation Cup here too, to the graveside in the 50s. Aware of the tradition, no one will be surprised to hear Big Jock took the Lisbon Lions in the European Cup to Brother Walford's graveside in 1967 to pay his respects. How nice would it be for Neil Lennon and his players in our 125th year to carry on the same tradition and at the end of this season take the league trophy and the full squad to Brother Walford's graveside. Also in 1963, Celtic gifted the school an astronomical telescope which they placed on top of the assembly hall and they even hit the news in a big UFO scare 
UEFA scare in nearly That's something totally different. <laughs> when the pupils discovered the UFO was in fact a weather balloon, I'm assured uh, that it wasn't used to search for future stars. Buried here too are Brother Clare, James Hanley, who wrote the Celtic story in 1960, and Brother Thomas Aquinas, who was a brother of Brother Dorotheus, who assisted in the founding of our club. So as we stand here today paying our respects, what is the legacy Brother Walford left us with? He leaves a club that is a vehicle for good, a club that continues the charitable work he began, a club that rose from the ghetto to become one of the biggest in world football, and a club that I'm certain Brother Walford would be extremely proud of today. If I could ask Peter Lawwell now, Chief Executive Celtic Football Club, to say a few words. Um, I think the first thing is to thank Brendan and the committee and the guys, uh, not just for today but for the fantastic work we do uh, in preserving the memories of, of Celtic greats. I think there's few clubs in the world, if any, that would have such a dedicated group of volunteers really to carry out such um, Magnificent work with such energy and enthusiasm, and I, I thank them. I think they all deserve a round of applause. <laughs> uh, Brother Walfred, um, a founding father who, who found the football club along with others, John Glass, Willie Maley, and others, um, who didn't only form a football club, they formed it for the best of reasons which was to play football matches, to raise money, to feed the poor of East End. I don't think there could be any better reason uh, to form a football club. But it was not only a football club they formed, they formed an institution that 125 years later is as strong today as it's ever been. And that institution um, gave an identity to a community, our community at the time, who faced deprivation, uh, real hostility, and it gave them an identity, a purpose, a cause, uh, inspiration and aspiration. And that, I think, over the last 125 years, has set Celtic apart from any other football club in the world. And a turnout like today demonstrates that. But it not only gave us that inspiration for that community, for us to develop and thrive, it gave us a set of values that, again, stand as strong today at Celtic Football Club as they were then. They gave us the values of inclusion, of family, of charity, humility. Every one of these I'm sure you guys will recognise the supporters that we have uh, together in the club we believe still promote today. And over those 125 years we've had to do the right thing in many, many occasions. We've had to stand up for what we believe in. And it was always vital to use those values as anchors to go back to and do the right thing. And only as recently as this year, in the last few months, which has been an extraordinary time for Scottish football, custodians of Celtic, which we are, we're only custodians and we gladly hand it over at the right time to, to others that will follow us. We relied on those values to do the right thing and we did the right thing. And here we are 125 years later where unquestionably Celtic is the leading football club and the most dominant football club in Scotland, unquestionable. 
So we go back to Brother Wil Wilfred for that inspiration. Uh, we look forward. We look forward, hopefully, for, for another 125 years. And you can be rest assured that Celtic will always stand by those values. We'll do what's right, and we'll take this club as far forward as we possibly can. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. 125 years ago, Sligo-born brother Walfred created Celtic Football Club to aid an impoverished and often shunned community. In the past 10 years alone, Celtic Football Club, through the work of its charity and its foundation, have achieved some remarkable results in continuing the vision of brother Walfred be it locally, nationally, or internationally. To date, some two million people, children and young people, have been helped in the areas of health, education, training, and sport. The club, through the Charity and Foundation, have invested over 10 million pounds to deliver projects and to assist other charities who need our help. Some of you will remember last year, uh, the Legends match against Manchester United. The funds raised from that match alone fed and watered and saved 66,000 people in Somalia during the East African famine. That's a staggering statistic, absolutely staggering. It's something you as supporters, the club, should be proud of for a long time to come. But we are determined to do more in this 125th anniversary. What more fitting tribute to Brother Walfred than helping more people in need than any football club in the world has ever done. With the help of the global Celtic family, we aim to do just this. 125 years after he created Celtic, I believe we have to keep this faith and vision alive by continuing to help those in greatest poverty and keep alive the heritage and beliefs he stood for and as importantly remember the visionary that was Brother Walfred's. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, young and old, right down to the babies. I'm here to, on behalf of the Maris brothers, to thank Brother Walford. And it's easy enough, I always say it's easy enough to do that when you're standing beside the grave. And you know he's up there, keeping an eye on us, and he's worked away there all his life in the East End and done so much good. And at the beginning I was going to say, I don't think he would have liked so much publicity. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he wouldn't. Internally he would be delighted and happy, but being a brother, I suppose, would say, but look at all these other men that are here, they've got to share it. That's why he's no different from the others. Just, we're trying to keep that bit down, but he's a great man. And the brothers recognise that, and we know that he's thought of like that in Rome, in the mother house there, in France, in our own place there, in the various places where we have brothers. All we have to do is, we mentioned Celtic, first of all, and then we say, you know it was founded by Brother Walter. Ah, 
Irene could start talking. And I say that lovely that you start talking because there's so much to talk about, so much good to talk about. On the bus coming down, I was behind somebody and they were talking about Celtic. And you know, all, all the good things that they have enjoyed <coughs> in the last few, what, what of years? And it's the same with us just now that we are here to celebrate the life of Brother Wolfley and to be able to enjoy that life that he has, in a sense, created. That it happens to be football. He was very interested in football when he started in Glasgow. You know, he founded um, five other teams, you know. I think one was called Hibs, the Harps, uh, the Emerald, the Shamrock, and the famous Columba football team, which seemed to be for those who were more literate. And then he came and found himself. Along with those others, as Peter mentioned, and the booklet gives a full summary of his life, a really better than we have in our own archives. And I'm taking it back and telling them, that's what you should have done. It's much superior to it. Got all the insights. As I said, I'm only here, I'm a, a teacher in this college many, many years ago, when Jimmy Brogan and Frank Brogan were here, that kind of area. Era. And so this graveyard is very much mine. And when I say that, I used to say to myself when I walked through here almost every day, that this is my place when I retire. Unfortunately, as you see, it's full up now. And we're stuck up in Glasgow. But there, again, back to Walford. A great man, a holy man, you know, speaking as a brother, he was able to move on from here where he was going to be a hero, if you like, of Glasgow Celtic, and go way down to London to do the same kind of work down there. He came back and just stayed in the mount there at the end of his life, and that's where he died. And I'm here to thank you, from Peter first of all, Zelda Club. Father, for all he does for the people here. For you people who are so kind, gentle, and so much of a family, which makes it so, so easy to talk to you. All I can say then is God bless you and thank you for everything. Father Sweeney, <coughs> Maris Brothers Norbert and Julian, representatives of Celtic Football Club and my fellow Celtic supporters. On the evening of the 6th of November 1887, the Angelus Bell of St Mary of the Assumption, Abercrombie Street, rang out over the huddled tenements of Glasgow's East End. In Calton, Mile End and Bridgeton, impoverished families living in insanitary slum dwellings heard it as a symbol of faith and hope. For working men, women and children, anticipating a 60-hour-long working week of grinding toil, it marked the passing of their one day of rest and recreation. It was faint in the ear of many, recovering from their Saturday night excesses, 
in the wine shops and drinking dens of the Calton Square Mile of 100 public houses. Many of them wouldn't be able to return to work until Tuesday. <laughs> For parish priest Canon Carmichael, it represented, of course, a call to Marian devotion and a time for reflection and the degrading poverty endured by so many of his community in a Victorian society that boasted military might, financial might and imperial empire. Perhaps he placed under the patronage of God's mother the meeting of the parish committee which had taken place that afternoon in the League of the Cross Hall in East Rose Street under the chairmanship of John Glass in the direction of Marist brother Walfred. His fervent hope would be that Walfred's scheme to fund the poor children's dinner table and the clothing front from monies raised by the activities of a community-centred football club would come to fruition. There was no equivalent of a preferential option for the Irish who poured into Glasgow in the aftermath of the Great Famine. Their welcome was a cold and bitter one, and they often faced an almost impenetrable wall of prejudice and discrimination. I pity the poor immigrant who wishes he would have stayed home, wrote Bob Dylan, and the Irish had arrived in a land where they were merely a paddy, a middy, a biddy, or a mick, good for nothing but stacking the brick. They were alienated from the native Scots by custom, politics, nationality and religion. They were portrayed stereotypically as violent, superstitious, feckless, drunken, ignorant and criminally inclined. With the honourable exception of the Scotsman newspaper, which consistently campaigned for sanity and fairness, the Scottish press did little to douse the fervour of extremists. The Irish were pejoratively described as the Bahoys from the land of the Praties and of Bog and as unwelcome sprigs of shamrock. They were consistently the target of cruel caricature and cartoon. The sports pages of the day could well have been filled with the Glasgow Fair pastime of baiting the Barneys. In its milder forms, it involved a ducking in the Wallandina or being pointed at derisorily in the soup lines by affluent Glaswegians in carriages. In its more extreme and sinister forms, mobs roamed the streets bludgeoning them. Even the hint of Irish intonation and speech would ensure a vicious clubbing. The squalid enclaves in the salt market in Brigitte were invaded by drunk and hate-fuel mobs who assaulted them and smashed up their homes, which were described at the time as poison dens, filthy beyond measure and disease-haunted. And indeed, they were haunted by the spectre of disease, typhus, scarlet fever, smallpox and cholera. Five priests lay in St Mary's crypt, victims of epidemic fevers. The tiny Calton burial ground, only a short distance from St Mary's, bore vivid testimony to the sufferings of all who existed here. The gravestones told the whole tragic story. 
bowbine, fever, water on the brain, childbed, decline. Those fortunate enough to find employment invariably were sweated and exploited in the dirtiest and most demanding of jobs. They laboured in mines, forges and factories. They toiled in iron and steel production. Many found jobs as carters, coachmen and common labourers. While others, in the best East End tradition, survived by huckstering and hawking, dealing in rags, bones and old clothes down in Paddy's Market. Too often, they were the vicious of the pernicious, they were the victims of the pernicious truck system, which kept them in a permanent state of indebtedness. Or they were dismayed by the shameful factory gate slogans, no Irish wanted here, no Catholics need apply. But in comedic style worthy of swift, sure wild, they added, and the same is written on the gates of hell. They weren't Glasgow's green and white yet, but they certainly were her disadvantaged, her marginalised, her vulnerable and dispossessed. The church was unfailingly innovative and imaginative in coming to their aid. St Mary's had a parish library, a penny savings bank and programmes of evening classes and an immensely successful building society. In the League of the Cross there were various recreational pursuits. The crowning community achievement was the provision of a parochial school for only education could loose the shackles of poverty and disadvantage. St Mary's may have been built in a clay field, but in its clergy and organisation, it provided a rock to which its people clung. Early educational provision for Irish immigrant children was rare and woefully inadequate. Fortunate children attended adventure schools up closes in High Street and in St Andrew's Square. There they were taught by dedicated Irish masters and senior pupils. The pupils were clean, they were orderly, but they were ragged, and they paid threepence or fourpence a week to have the three R's ground into them with great devotion. The premises were cramped and evil smelling, often accommodating up to 170 boys and girls. Um, <clears throat> the Maris brothers came to Glasgow in 1856 and the situation changed dramatically and forever. They had been founded in France by Saint Marceline Champagnat in 1817, the saint being described at its canonisation in 1999 by His Holiness Pope John Paul II as a man true to his people and to Christ. His aim was to institute schools for the underprivileged, which would allow young people to achieve their full potential and combat spiritual and material poverty. He had a simple wish to make good Christians and good people and to provide an enduring model for parents and teachers so that they could look at young people with hope. In 1857, the school of St Mungo and St Columkill was opened in Glebe Street, and by 1867, 
the Royal Commission for Education in Scotland could report teaching, superiority in pupil discipline and attitude, the school is in perfect order. Brother Walfred became head of St Mary's Junior School in 1871. Born Andrew Kierans in Ballymote, County Sligo, he was from farming stock and a child of the famine in one of Ireland's most affected counties. He was most certainly haunted by the enduring folk memory of that great national tragedy, of the cries of starving children, of the stench of rotting potatoes and corpses, of thousands in mass graves. In 1874, he transferred to the Sacred Heart School to assist Father Noonan and was there for a further 12 years. It was here in 1884 and with the assistance of the St Vincent de Paul Society that he opened a shop in Savoy Street to provide penny dinners for children who were often absent from school due to hunger, lack of clothing and footwear. The scheme was an immediate success and soon afterwards Brother Dorotheus up at St Mary's followed suit and within a very short time he was serving up to 1,000 dinners a week from the old blacksmith shop at the rear of the schoolyard. Walfred and Dorotheus realised however that this much needed programme required new income schemes if it, were to be to, if it were to be sustained and to continue to be successful. And to this end, Walfred arranged a series of fundraising football matches in May 1887 involving Dundee Harp, Clyde, Renton and Hibbs, attracting around 16,000 spectators and much needed income. More significantly, on the 12th of February that year, Hibernian, the pride of all Irishmen in Scotland, had defeated Dumbarton 2-1 to win the Scottish Cup. Before the, the victorious party returned to Edinburgh, they were guests at a joyous and congratulatory reception in St Mary's Hall. Amid song, speech and cheering, John McFadden, the Hibs Secretary, suggested to the gathering that they emulate the Capital Club and form their own team for the Irish of the West of Scotland. Present at that meeting were Dr John Conway, John Glass and of course Brother Walfred. And it was this blend of idealism, business acumen and religious commitment that would lead to the formation of the club. And if you know the history, and that's not a cue for a song, in spite of calls for a Bernanes, Harps, Shamrocks and Emeralds, Walfred named the team the Celtic. The Glasgow Irish built the park in Gilmarnock Street, Penman Brothers of Bridgeton Cross provided the strip, and on the 28th of May 1888, in front of 2,000 spectators, Rangers Swifts, were defeated by five goals to two and a team with a unique social and moral dimension was born. It was in time to change the social history of a city, a nation and a people. By 1892 Walfred had been transferred 
by his superiors to St Anne's Whitechapel and thence to Bow and Grove Ferry. He maintained an interest in the team and spoke fondly of the old quarters, rarely expressing his sadness at the withdrawal of the poor children's dinner table contributions and support. He retired here to Dumfries, where he passed to his reward in 1915, a Celtic jersey being placed on his coffin. What kind of man was the architect-in-chief of our club? Walfred was above all a man of faith in his God and in the suffering humanity that surrounded him. His gentleness, his kindness and compassion had a sublime and sacred inspiration. It echoed down the centuries and societies from the lips of Christ himself. Whenever you did it for these, the least of my children, you did it for me. He was deeply sensitive, not only to the needs of those he served, but also to their sense of self-esteem. For those who could afford it, he gave the opportunity to supply bread and a portion of the penny dinner fee so that they might retain their dignity and their pride. Modest, humble, self-effacing, his holy simplicity embodied the Marist motto, unknown and hidden in the world. Yet, he moved easily and influentially at all levels of society. One writer commented, he only needed to knock and it would be opened. His innate charm and charisma invariably encouraging a generous response. As an educationist, he was innovative and well ahead of his time. He wasn't a stern Victorian dominie. He was proactive rather than punitive in his initiatives to tackle indiscipline, bad timekeeping and absenteeism. He initiated simple reward systems, extracurricular activities and embraced the technology of the day. During his time at the college here, he gave a magic lantern show, the picturesque abbeys of Scotland with accompanying commentary to the great acclaim of the students. Preeminent in his thinking was a duty of care and an obligation to cherish all, no matter how difficult or deprived. <coughs> the Marist was a tremendous judge of character and ability. The committee he recruited had legal, commercial, business, technical, political and administrative, administrative expertise. The dynamic John Glass, administrator G.H. McLaughlin, lawyers Joseph Shaughnessy and Michael Kearns, businessmen Joseph Nellis and Hugh Darrock, political know-how in John O'Hara, football knowledge in Tom and Willie Maley, and of course the unimpeachable integrity of Dr John Conway. To live and work in Glasgow's East End in the late 19th century must have required a sense of humour. And I feel certain that Brother Walfred must have smiled quietly as he heard pupils' reasons and remember they had plenty of the barney, the blarney rather, when they were standing in front of him for absenteeism. Even back then, the Calton and Bridgeton boys did it in style. The records make 
very interesting reading. Attendance at Paisley races. Although it's not clear whether the boys were there as spectators, jockeys or bookies. A visit to the Wild Beast Show at Vinegar Hill. Sometimes, I'm afraid, available on a Friday night even yet. The Great Glasgow Exhibition of 1888. Meanwhile, the more politically aware came out in sympathy with the Great London Dock Strike. However, one of their written demands was mere pocket money. <laughs> and what schoolboy could resist the Sioux Nation, the 7th Cavalry, and the real cowboys of Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show just up the road in Duke Street? And of course, there was the Celtic. Though attendance at a midweek afternoon match would surely have been dealt with leniently, as after all, the boys had already made excuse. Brother, we were only supporting the school team. <laughs> <laughs> and what a community booster the formation of Celtic was. It's captured perfectly by Pat Woods and Tom Campbell in their history, The Glory and the Dream. They summarise brilliantly, I feel, the impact that Walfred's team made. The Irish seized upon Celtic as a symbol of hope. Their community pride in the club's success was a sublimation of appalling living and working conditions. On a Saturday, exulting in another victory, it was like taking revenge for the rest of the week. Tom Maley, who knew him very well, perhaps pays the finest tribute. Through the organising genius, the wonderful persuasive powers and personality of Brother Walfred, the Celtic club was established. His men carried out his every wish and idea. They knew and they trusted their leader in the knowledge that he, like them, wanted the club for the most laudable of objects, charity and as a recreation for his beloved EastEnders. At the conclusion of his 1960 history of the Celtic story, eminent Marist brother Clare, James, James Handley, who's buried just in my left here, expressed the following simple sentiment regarding the charitable ethos of our club. Long may these good deeds continue. And indeed, that ethos and legacy of Walfred is maintained today. It endures in the work of the Good Child Foundation in Thailand and the stirring song and dance of those wonderful Thai Tims. We see it in the beaming smiles of African children who have received much needed medical aid or nourishment. It's vibrant in the joyous participation in sport, music and drama of our very special brothers and sisters under the auspices of Down Syndrome Scotland. We find it in the hope of the victims of addiction, racism, homelessness and unemployment who have been aided by club initiatives. And always it is secure in the work of the Celtic Charity Fund and the incomparable generosity of ordinary Celtic supporters responding to famine, flood, drought, epidemic and the ravages of war. 
Walfred's spirit ensures that wherever there is need or disadvantage, the Glasgow Celtic will be there. We are Celtic supporters, faithful through and through, sing the adoring crowds at Celtic Park. As we gather here today at our founder's resting place and in this school of such great Celtic associations, let us indeed be faithful through and through to our team, which has brought such success and distinction to those iconic green and white hoops, but also to the undiminished vision and ideals of Brother Walfred, his concept of more than a club, of a team and a support wearing the garment of inclusion, of tolerance, of honourable behaviour, compassion and charity, ensuring that our grand old team, as it stands on the threshold of its 125th year, may, be con may continue to be worthy of and reaffirm Tom Maley's accolade of almost 100 years ago that the Celtic are the greatest and best of all football and athletic institutions. I'd like to always say a wee word just before the blessing and one of the great privileges of being one of three priests in Holy Cross is that you have to get up an hour before Mass and open up and every morning when you go down there there's two men from Donegal and no matter what the weather they're there from half six in the morning waiting for you to open up at half seven and whenever you go out they always say Father what about that result eh? <laughs> and this morning just before I opened the door I could hear them talking you know that loud way you speak to foreign people who don't know what you're saying, but you think if you speak loud and slow, they understand. And when I got there, I was aghast to see that standing in their presence was Monsignor Arturo, the secretary of the Cardinal Archbishop of Barcelona, who has no English. And these two Donegal men telling them about how well Celtic played yesterday. <laughs> and when we get into the sacristy, I said, are you here? His brother stays in Govan Hill of all places. Are you here to see your brother? He says, hmm. I went into his bag and he took out his owl, his stole and his ticket for Wednesday's match. <laughs> he said, this is the real reason I'm here. And that reminds us of what this man has done that in places like Barcelona, throughout Africa, wherever the faith went, wherever the Irish went, that Celtic Football Club went with them. I had the great privilege of growing up in the leafy suburb of the Garn Gad to a father who was raised in the Calton, born and raised in Soho Street in the same clothes as Tommy Burns, who went to the Marist schools of St Mary's and St Mungles and who was delighted when just over two years ago, I had the great privilege of being ordained a priest in that very church of St Mary's. And in 2007, when St Rock's reached its centenary, 
I was doing research into a wee book and I was delighted to find out when the Maris first arrived in Glasgow, they came to the Garngad, to Garngad Hill, and there they opened their first school. And I had the privilege a few years ago of going to Ballymote and to celebrate Mass in the very church, in the very area where this great man began his journey of faith, because it was his journey of faith that took him to Glasgow, and it's our journey of faith that must take us on to the next 125 years to carry on his work. Because as Peter rightly said, we're only the custodians. People have gone before us and many will follow us for our club will remain forever. And when you walk, drive up that new road now, as you look at the front of Celtic Park, standing there, guarding over the front doors of paradise as an image of that great brother and we should never forget what he's done for us. Today, as James McMullen said in his music at the unveiling of the statue, we remember Walford at the gates of paradise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear friends, we gather today at the final resting place of our founding Father to give thanks for what he created, to pray for the rest of his soul, and the souls of all the members of the Catholic family who have passed away, as well as those whose bodies rest here, and to remember who we are, and what we are, and from what we have come. Let us pray. God of our ancestors, throughout the centuries, you have stayed faithful to us in raising and sending humble men and women to release your people from the chains of poverty, injustice, and oppression. We, the Celtic family, built in the spirit of the Marist family, thank you for raising your humble servant, Andrew Kearns, and sending him to our city and our country. And we thank you for the graces and favours bestowed upon our club and the poor of the East End and beyond through our brother Walfred and his Marist companions. We praise and bless you for 125 years of temporal success and achievements. And we ask you, keep us always mindful of our true purpose as a club and to accept the spirit of our founder by reaching out to the most neglected members of our society and those less fortunate than ourselves to transform their lives and situations and gain our own eternal reward in paradise. We ask you to continue to send your blessings upon our Celtic family. Through these men and women who now walk in our founding father's footsteps and carry on his charitable works now and in the future. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The patroness of the Marist family is Our Lady. Our Lady, the humble servant from Nazareth, reminds us by her faith and words that our God is a God who looks on his servants in their lowliness, who casts the mighty from their throne, who raises the lowly and fills the starving with good things. And we ask her protection and her intercession in our charitable work. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Amen.
eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. May he rest in peace. Amen. May his soul and the souls of all the faithful depart. Through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Anyone would like to lay some Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a fantastic day. The work of the Celtic Grave Society continues and this is the club's 125th year with upcoming events as follows. The weekend of the 8th and 9th September we're working with the John Thompson Memorial Committee and arranging a cycle event from Celtic Park to John Thompson Grave in Carden Den. In October we're holding a ceremony to mark the 30th anniversary of Jimmy McGrory at his gravesite in St Peter's Cemetery, Dalbeth. On November the 6th we're holding organising a special mass in St Mary's to mark the exact 125th anniversary of the day the club was formally constituted. And in March we're holding an event in New York to mark the 75th anniversary of legendary goalkeeper Charlie Shaw. If you'd like to find out any more you can pick up a booklet from one of our glamorous, not so glamorous assistants today. In closing, we'd like to thank, first of all, the people of Dumfries who have made us so welcome here today. I'd like to thank Anne Barber and Neil Boyd, Paul Jardin from St Joseph's College, the local CSCs including Creetown and District, brothers Julian and Norbert, the affiliation of Registered Celtic Supporters Club, Peter Lawwell, Ian Hughes from Celtic, as well as Tony Hamilton, Paul Cuddy, Adrian Philby for their continued support. I'd like to thank Father John Sweeney for conducting the blessing. Thank Terry for being Terry. Last but not least, I'd like to thank everyone who's attended today and made the event so special. We're now going to have a short tour of the cemetery in the Mount St Michael Chapel before we retire to a local hostelry where we've arranged a buffet and a refreshment where everyone is welcome. Thanks very much. us back at Celtic Park now. It's just gone quarter to six. Everyone's heading back home, and it's been a really good day. Out. Uh, it was nice to see a good few faces. Like, uh, Phil McGovern was here. Obviously, Peter Lowell and everyone representing Celtic himself. I thought the the speakers were fantastic. The um, 
the, the Maris brothers spoke really well and I thought Father Sweeney did as well. It was some good words said today about one of the most important people in our history. So I'm sitting in the car staring at the statue at the moment and thinking what a great day it's been. And I, hopefully there's going to be a good fo- few uh, more days coming just in the, the coming months with the, the cycle ride with the John Thompson Memorial in September and then the the memorial for Jimmy McGrory that was coming in October and then um, obviously there's the 125th anniversary of our founding coming up on November 6th I don't think I'm making a New York trip in March unfortunately but you never know I might win a lottery before then <laughs> I tell you what if I, if I win Hundreds of millions of pounds. I will definitely go in there in March and be there to record. But it's more likely as someone else over there will be there recording. Hopefully we'll get someone up there and capture the moment then, just like we capture other moments here as well. Anyway, I'll sign off. Here we go. Church down the Calvin Way. Brother Walter's plan was set in 1888. The club was born to feed the poor, and Celtic was his name. And that was Brother Walter's dream. God had given him the strength to fight for good rights. And he has given us the team that plays in green and whites. From Irish shores to Scottish hearts, and all that's in between. That was Brother Walter's dream. In this place called paradise united in belief Through the wind and through the rain and throughout history We won't forget our brother's dream We see no race nor creed We stand together